0: All right, we're in Acts chapter twenty. We're probably going to camp here a little longer. This is just a great passage. I can't do it justice, but we're going to try. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we look at your word, we ask for not just understanding, but um, dedication to the principles that Paul lays out here for. the church, for pastors, for elders, for shepherds of the flock, Lord, and that all of us would um, be committed to the things that he was so committed to, gave his life for. We ask you to help us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, This is an amazing passage. If only we could bottle Paul's heart and make it a required drink for all seminarians and pastors and Everybody is an elder in a church office, but uh, we can't bottle it. So we have to labor to follow him ourselves and do all we can to hold those in leadership up in prayer and keep them accountable to the the heart perspective and the pattern of life that Paul exhibits in his ministry. So last week we really just sort of scratched the surface of all that Paul shares here with the Ephesian elders. And by extension, uh, to all shepherds of the flock in, in every age and in every place. I've already talked about the church all over the world this morning. Well, these uh, these principles apply everywhere for church leaders. We learned so much about what a shepherd should be and shouldn't be. So last time we looked briefly at the elder qualifications in verse 19 and verse 20 and verse 27. Verse 19 really laid the critical, uh, sort of the heart foundation, the proper motivation of the shepherd. The phrase, the main phrase being, serving the Lord with all humility. So the shepherd serves the Lord, not man. He does serve people, but the only right way to serve people is to serve the Lord properly, right? I mean, that just sort of makes sense. The father sets forth what he wants, and the shepherd guides people to what the Lord wants and he helps that take place in a, in a church body or um, in any kind of ministry that he has. The Shepherd doesn't have any special insights himself. The, sh- the Shepherd points people to the will of the Father. That, that's his insight. All that the Father wants is in the Word of God. The Shepherd serves the Word of God and points people to that. So the Shepherd has to say no. To other voices. Contrary voices. Any voices from other people. uh, Any voice in his own heart. That might entice him away. From God's truth. And God's way. He can't listen to those voices. No, No one else. And nothing else. Can come before this fundamental commitment. To serve the Lord. That Paul talks about in verse 19. Most of all the shepherd makes sure. Um. He doesn't come before the Lord. And that's where this idea of humility comes in here. His personal interests are the last to be considered because he's a slave. That's the language that Paul uses. And the slave, a slave doesn't assume he's going to get a lot of kudos or thank yous for doing his job or extra perks. He's not concerned about his dignity. He's not concerned about earthly honors serving is what a slave does so Paul says in verse 19 his heart is one of all humility and last week we talked about um, different ways to translate that Linsky one one of the Bible commentators translates it very directly actually complete humble mindedness sometimes he calls it lowly mindedness and that is what the true shepherds attitude has to be now is God going to reward the shepherd well sure if not in this life, then on the great day when he hears the well done, he, he, he'll be rewarded. Do people appreciate the shepherd? Well very often they do, but not always. Um, he's, he's fortunate if that's the case where people appreciate what he does, but he doesn't do it for that. He doesn't do it to have the praise of people. Or to have honor. Or to gain from people. He has to eschew those things. I love that word eschew. That's a cool word. But it means to shun. He has to just let all that stuff go. He has to. And if the world keeps piling it up on him he might have to kind of ask that it not be done anymore. Because he doesn't want to have his head turned by those things in the world. Now verse 20 and verse 27 reveal a really important goal of proper Christian instruction. We talked about that last Sunday. That's teaching the whole purpose of God. So we spent a lot of time on that last week. So I'm just going to say that that tells us that shepherd labors to draw the flock to all that God has to say in the scriptures. So it's a well-rounded grasp of Christian beliefs, doctrines, practices, history, and divine wisdom, all the things in the Bible related to all those different areas. His job is to bring people to that and feed it to them. He's feeding the flock. I should mention verse 26 today since I, I didn't quite squeeze it in last week, but He says therefore I testify to you this day Paul is speaking that I am innocent of the blood of all men. We didn't mention that verse. That leads into verse 27 which we did talk about. Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So a shepherd is only innocent of wrongdoing if he gives his people the whole purpose of God. If he doesn't do that it's like he has blood on his hands. Because he hasn't told them everything that God wants them to have. If he didn't labor to teach all that God has to say. If he has like personal hobby horses or he just likes to teach whatever's in his mind that day or if he prefers political stuff to the great truths of the Bible. if, If his people go astray, then he bears that responsibility if he hasn't done his job to give people the whole counsel of God. And if he turns to other things instead. He bears that responsibility. But if he has told them, then the responsibility is on them. So Paul says, I am innocent of all blood. In other words, I I have told you everything. So now it's your turn to take it and do what you know you need to do with it. So he talks about it like the shepherd has murdered them if he denies them the truth, using that blood language. And that's kind of true. He's murdering souls if he doesn't tell them all that God has. So today we're going to move forward into the text to the parts we didn't mention last time. And... What we're going to do today is, uh, if you notice, I'm just kind of grabbing things out of here because when I put all this together, when I'm reading this and you know, I kind of chart it out and circle words and all that stuff, there's just all these really cool verbs and infinitives that Paul uses in this text and they're kind of related and he kind of uses key ones. So last time we talked about um, what he was uh, solemnly testifying to. Um, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. The way he's solemnly testifying to you. The first thing you do when you study a passage is just look at it, you know. So, verbs, infinitives. And here we have verbs and infinitives that are translated. At the tra- Infinitives are translated like verbs frequently. And they say a lot. So, verse 20 and verse 27 both use the word Declaring with regard to the idea of teaching the whole purpose of God. Verse 20 uses teaching so Paul says declaring is teaching all of this stuff. And then we have this other set of verbs which is to solemnly testify or to testify. And we find that in verse 21 and verse 24 and, and then in verse 26 he mentions it too but. So last time we actually read verse 26 where Paul testifies to his innocence of the blood of all men. But he uses solemnly testify It's a different word, it's a more expanded word, to talk about the main thing, the centerpiece of his work. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, what he solemnly testifies to. So the first use of it is in verse 21, and it's the content of his teaching when he says in verse 20, I was teaching you publicly and from house to house. And then he gets to verse 21, he says, solemnly testifying. So that's what we're going to look at. What was he testifying So our goal today is to narrowly focus on what Paul was solemnly testifying to the church in Ephesus. And he says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of, two things, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. So we did a whole lesson on repentance as a necessary component of saving faith kind of at the end of August. Uh, this year, we, we, that was another part of Acts, we noted that sometimes the term repent is used in scripture by itself, calling on people to repent other times believe, like the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ just that word is used, sometimes they're both used together but both are essential and both are needed and you don't have to use both words every time, we talked about that because if you truly repent, you believe, right? And if you believe in Jesus as a savior from your sin and you confess him as your Lord, if you believe that, you're going to repent. If you really believe that. So saving faith always includes repentance. And true repentance always grows out of faith. So they're always together. Remember that phrase we used? We called them inseparable graces. That term is actually used in our doctrinal statement. Inseparable graces graces. Faith and repentance are always together if they're real. So if you weren't here you can listen to that sermon it's called Inseparable Graces. What an, what an amazing <laughs> thing. You can find it on the website. But here in Acts 20 they're together for clarity's sake. He does use both terms. So in verse 21 he describes repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's receiving the gospel. That is the gospel really. In terms of what the human response to what Christ did for us is, so let's talk about these two aspects. I'm really going to focus on repentance. Um, repentance is not just being sorry. I'm sorry, I wrong, I did wrong. I'm so sorry. He's talking about being reconciled to God, to becoming becoming a follower of Jesus, and that's much more than saying I'm sorry. Oh God, I'm sorry. It's much more than that. So this is this is coming to faith coming to a relationship being reconciled to God it's through faith and repentance this is the gospel call he's talking about here so it's uh, repentance isn't being just sorry it's being reconciled it's it's turning in a direction to follow Christ the Old Testament word for repentance really means to turn that's what it means like you're going this way and you're going to go this way so you're turning from something to something And it's a directional thing. You're going in a new direction. So you're turning away from something you held to. Sin. Idolatry. Self-sufficiency. And you turn. You take hold of the living God. And what he offers you. So what you held on to was. Whatever it was you held on to. Was not a neutral thing. Anything you put in the place of God. Or that was more important to you than, than God and his will that was an idol for you and you're turning from that at least from the heart commitment to that and you're giving that full heart commitment to God and that thing even if it's an innocent thing has a new place in your life you know what I'm saying so you're turning from that as your your world your your passion and your great passion is going to be for the Lord and then that thing finds its proper place if it's a sin it's got to go but if it's something else you just like doing he's got to come first. So it was an idol. So your personal allegiance is what's changing, it's shifting, dramatically shifting towards the Lord. So the Ephesian Christians, they had to let Artemis go. The goddess of the Ephesians, they had to let her go, right? They had to let cultic prostitution go. They had to let all their magic books go. Remember they had the big thing and burned millions of dollars worth of uh, magic books that they all brought and gave up. So These were things that they believed in and looked to for blessing or good fortune but they're not real and they take your heart away from God so they had to get rid of those things. They had to put them aside and come to God. The heart was drawn away from God by those things so they have to address that. You can't have Christ and have substitutes for him in the same heart. You can't do that. So the substitutes have to go. They don't mix. A 21st century man might his allegiance might be to his autonomous self. I decide what's right and wrong. I choose this. I choose that. His belief that he invents his own reality. Now we're in that part of the stage of decline of civilization where people believe you can create your own reality. You know, uh, I'm a girl today. I'm a guy tomorrow. Yeah. I'm a I'm a fish or whatever the thing. Y- I'm a furry. Uh, uh, you whatever you whatever you think. His belief that everything also is equally valid. Whatever you believe is equally true. Which isn't true. Obviously it's not true. So modern man has kind of taken logic off the table and just said whatever you whatever you want to be that's good. Whatever you believe that's good. Well no it's not. Not everything is equally valid. That's just logic. But to follow Christ he's got to let that go. He's got to let philosophy go. He's got to let worldly wisdom go. He's got to let immorality go. He's going to have to be a different person, so repentance is making a a break, a a clean break with the past. He's going to build his life on Jesus. That's what he's choosing to do. Here's how the unsettled world likes to phrase things. They put it in a form of a question. Why is the church so demanding of this exclusive loyalty to the God of the Bible? Why are they so Picky about that? Isn't that just a way for the church to make everything about Christianity and control people? Isn't that what it is? Don't you ever hear anybody say something like that? I mean, that's kind of the standard line. And the answer is, uh, well, you know, there might be some people that are Christian of some sorts and actually do want to control people, but that's not what Christianity is about, and that's not what we're doing, and that's not what that's not the Christian way at all. Exclusive devotion to God, to the God of the Bible, it isn't about controlling people. It isn't about winning a culture war or anything like that. It's simply giving the real God his due. That's all it is. It's giving him what he deserves. His his all honor and worship and glory and thanksgiving goes to him. That's what we're doing. Singular loyalty to the living God revealed in the Bible. It's all about our condition when The gospel comes to us. We are lost. That's Jesus' word for us. We're lost. Humanity is lost. He also used the word evil about humanity. Human beings are evil. We're in the camp of the enemy of God and we have to come out of that camp and come to him. We have to come to his side. His position. Satan, the enemy of God, has built a whole world of lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. That's really his power. He's a great deceiver. And that deceit has to be broken. We have to move away from it. The father of lies is, sumel- is selling humanity lies that they're very willing to believe. Because human beings are fallen creatures we are already prone to deception. In fact you know what the Bible says the most deceitful thing in the world is. It's the human heart. Jeremiah 17, that's what the Bible says. The most deceitful thing in the world is the human heart. So if that's true, and the enemy of God is wanting to feed lies to people, they're pretty ready to buy those lies. That's how things get so crazy so fast. Oh yeah, okay, that's that's the new weird thing. I'll accept that, I believe that. I'm gonna fight for that, that lie. So people are already bent in their heart towards deception, self-deception. And the Bible says the most deceitful thing is human heart. So Satan's going to feed that human heart. So religions, philosophies, unbelief altogether are ways to keep us from being reconciled to God. And that's where the human heart goes. That's why Jesus said we're lost. In Ephesians chapter 2 Paul says man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Lost, evil, evil dead. That's not looking good for us. In Romans 5 Paul says we are sinners, we're ungodly, we're helpless, and we're enemies of God. He says all those four things in that one little section right there. Sinners, helpless, ungodly, enemies of God. So can you see why there has to be a great turning, a repentance, a a turning away from all of those things to God. That's why that's essential for salvation. There has to be repentance. Well why does the Bible have to call me an enemy? Because we fail to acknowledge the authority of the true king of the universe and the creator of all things. We are his enemies. We are rebels in his universe. That makes you an enemy. Well I don't feel like an enemy. Yes you are. If you have not reconciled with him. Because you're born in that condition. That's humanity's condition. To be an enemy of God. To be against Him. That's how human history began. Willfully breaking His commandments. Our first parents did that and ever since that God says to us don't do what they did. Don't do what they did. Acknowledge who I am. Acknowledge my authority. And we say no. No I don't want to do that. But a repentant heart says I was wrong. I not only acknowledge your authority Lord but I confess that your authority is good and right and I confess that you are just in punishing sin and I am the one in the wrong. That's more than just saying oh I was wrong. It's turning to him acknowledging what's great about him what's true about him. That's what has to happen. So repentance is really accepting our part in the ruin of creation. It's saying that I am part of that corruption of creation, the destruction of creation. So repentance turns to God very meekly and says, I can only live by your mercy. That's the only way I can live. And thank you for offering it to me. I take it. That's reconciliation. So just that one aspect of embracing salvation, repentance, is Really important. And then Paul, what does Paul say the other one is? The other inseparable grace. It's faith. Not faith period. Not faith in faith but what does he say in verse 21? It's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was testifying publicly house to house he says. Publicly and house to house. That's what he was testifying of. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one proper object of faith. One proper place to put our faith. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Why is it important who we put our faith in? Because there's only one Savior. Right? God only became flesh one time. In one place. There's only one sacrifice that was actually made for the sins of the world. Only one. And it was done by The Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, Jesus is the judge who's paid your penalty himself. And when you stand before him as the judge and you say, you know, I really want you just to think about how good I am and forget what you did for me. That's not gonna gonna wash because he knows all about you. So it's faith in Jesus that saves. The real Jesus. The Jesus that's coming to judge the world. He said it many times and I don't think anywhere more beautifully than John 11.25 where he said I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Wow. That's good news. So it's faith that saves. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith plus nothing it's faith that saves. Yeah okay but why is he saying this to church leaders? Don't these elders know all this stuff? Why, Why is he saying faith and repentance? What's that have to do with church leadership? I thought he was talking to church leaders here. Why is he going over basic doctrines? Well here's why it's important for church leadership because you can go to many churches today many denominations I was raised in one and never hear a word about repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a means of salvation you'll never hear it ever I grew up in a church like that my whole childhood till I was out of, out of high school never heard that now I heard about it because we sang it because Martin Luther wrote the liturgy for it but it was never proclaimed we were never invited to embrace that For our salvation. There's many many churches like that. There's many pastors. Across America. Across the globe. That don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in salvation. They don't believe there's a need for salvation. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Because Paul's coming up to warn. These Ephesian elders. About what can happen. If they're not committed to these things. And that's why he's talking to them about it. They have to stay committed to these things. There will always be people who will deny or contort or ignore the essential, the most essential things. Already in in Paul's day, so he's sitting in Ephesus. If you could think of where Ephesus is on a map. There's problems to the west and there's problems to the east. Of where he's already been. Churches he's already planted. There's messes going on. There were people visiting churches that Paul planted while he was still alive, denying the sufficiency of faith to save, to be reconciled to God. There were men and movements trying to recreate the Christian faith as something else already happening. Places he'd already been, places where he'd planted a church. To the west, in Corinth, there were pseudo apostles. That's actually the Bible word pseudo apostles, fake apostles. Teaching really weird stuff. And glorifying themselves. Here's how he describes them. In 2nd Corinthians chapter 11. Such men are false apostles. That's pseudo apostles. Deceitful workers. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan. Describes him, Disguises himself. As an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising. If his servants also disguise themselves. As servants of righteousness. Whose end will be according to. To their deeds he says. They were false apostles. False prophets. Exalting themselves. And committing a great sin. By claiming gifts for themselves. That they don't have. And saying that God spoke to them. When he hadn't spoke to them. And trying to run the church. And some of the saints believed in them. And the elders in Corinth. Were taken in. Or they were too timid to do anything about it. Because these guys were very aggressive. And very uh, eloquent very powerful. And we see the same things happening today. Uh, very same thing. It, it's rampant in every part of the world. False shepherds claiming great things. Little kings, little kings and they give themselves grand titles that they don't deserve. I just saw recently because I was doing some research there was an African false prophet who is so self inflated He literally wears a golden crown on his head. And when he arrives someplace to preach on his helicopter. He comes out and he's wearing a golden crown and an ermine robe. Just like a king of Europe somewhere. And a red carpet is rolled out for him. And he walks along the red carpet with his queen wife. And goes and does these ministry things. (coughs) And there's a singer in L.A some young girl and he told her that she's a prophet and an apostle. So she goes around saying she's an apostle now. She's got her own church. She's the apostle of a church in LA. That craziness was going on in Corinth to the west. On the east, east of Ephesus Paul had to deal with a very harmful sect that was following him everywhere trying to get all of his gentile converts to become Jewish and that they had to a- add Jewish ritual. Especially circumcision. That was the big thing. You To be saved. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law of Moses. That's what they were saying. Everywhere he'd went. They said you have to embrace circumcision. And or good works to be right with God. It's not by faith. Only. Well, now we saw that issue in Acts chapter 15. The great Jerusalem council. Was about that er- very issue. And that's where Peter. Stood up and gave this great declaration. His last words in the book of Acts. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That was his recommendation. I mean not a recommendation to the council. Of course it was. But I mean that was his declaration of truth. We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Plus nothing. No circumcision. In that moment Peter was being a shepherd. That spoke the truth. That was caring for the flock. That was talking about an essential thing that was being questioned. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone is always under attack. It's always being challenged. There's always efforts to add to it. So here's two very different problems. The the crazy apostles, pseudo apostles in Corinth and the Judaizers we call them today. The Judaizers who are trying to Muck up the gospel. With. Jewish rituals. Totally different problem. These were churches. That were planted. By an apostle. Personally. And had elders. Chosen by an apostle. And they were struggling. To deal with these problems. Let's turn to Galatians. For a minute. I want to show you this thing. These are the churches. He planted in Acts chapter 13. And Acts chapter 14. The the Galatian churches. So I'm going to give you. A four minute run. Through the book of Galatians. So. So. He, he starts off pretty directly. So he's dealing with this attack on salvation by faith. Salvation by grace through faith. Oh, I gotta turn there myself. Let's see. So in chapter 1 he talks about how amazed he is. Verse 6 I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's how serious it is. Verse 7, which is not really another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you he is to be accursed. Now that was a real subtle gentle lead in to this problem that they were having. They were called by grace and now they're off to add something else. So Paul says I don't care who told you to add something if an angel shows up and tells you to add something that angel is accursed. The gospel they received at the beginning was not Paul's gospel. Look at verse 11. For I would have you know brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then I think chapter 2 verse 16 makes it really clear that this, what this revelation was. 2.16, nevertheless knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified no one who stands before God on judgment day and says examine me and approve is going to be approved by their works burn it into your heart by the works of the law no flesh will be justified and in verse 21, that same chapter, he points out that salvation by works really does away with the very idea of the cross. It's an attack on the cross. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if, the righteousness, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So their, their errant belief is overthrowing the gospel. It denies what God has done. Chapter 3 verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit you are now being perfected by the flesh? So he's saying how can your experience of grace let you be lured into adding rituals to this great thing that God has done in Christ and given you the spirit to love what he's done and to appreciate what he's done and now you want to add to it. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? That doesn't make any sense at all. So God's shepherds, the elders, the pastors, the leaders fear a flock drifting into false doctrine and with false teachers chapter 5 verse 1 it was for freedom that Christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery behold I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no benefit to you And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law you have fallen from grace. Verse 5. For we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The shepherd's job is to protect the flock. Galatia was losing the gospel. They were letting it go. It was getting away. And it happened so easily. So if you think how in the first century you might have an an occasional false prophet pass through town where your church is. You might have some group like these Judaizers that kind of are targeting churches. Some one group that comes in and you kind of have to deal with them. Nowadays, because of technology and the internet, there's an infinite sea of false teachers to be aware of. Technology is just bringing them all to us. I try to stay up with this stuff, but it's impossible. There's too many. You know, it's too many. So when I find a new one that somebody's latched onto, and I, I look it up, but. There's just so many. What, what we can do. As people of God. And this is the responsibility of everybody in the church. Is to become an expert. In the truth. It's kind of like what they always say about counterfeit money. You know. People that know how to recognize counterfeit money. They don't study counterfeit money. They study real money. And so when they know all about real money. And all the little elements to it. The texture and all that stuff. And the. Things they put in there. That they can immediately recognize counterfeit money. Because it doesn't have what's true. And we should be like that. We should know the truth. So well. That when false teachers come along. We go hey. That's not true. That's against scripture. That's how we should be. That's, that's the best way to handle it. Because it's too hard to keep up. With everything. Well let me finish with Paul's second statement. And we'll just spend a second on this. But the second thing he solemnly testified to. So the first thing. Was repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is in verse, um, it's in verse 24. Let me start in Acts. We're back in Acts. Acts 20 verse 22. I'm going to start there. Because I haven't read that yet. Now behold bound by the spirit. I, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies. Oh he testifies too. Yeah. Solemnly. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me. In every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So the Holy Spirit's telling him that through prophets. So as Paul is traveling through the churches, prophets in those local churches, these are real prophets. Tell him bonds and afflictions await you in Jerusalem. So he's hearing this over and over again. So he knows that's going to happen. But he's going to go anyway. So verse 24, now he's solemnly testifying because this is the last time he's going to see these Ephesian elders. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. What was that ministry? To solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So that's the other great thing that he solemnly testifies to. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was called into ministry for that, the grace of The gospel of grace. The good news is that Jesus earned salvation for us and he freely gives it to us and if we turn to God and put all our confidence in him all our sins are taken away and we'll live in glory forever with him. That's the gospel. It's a gift that he achieved for us. He purchased that gift and gave it to us. Take that away or distort it or add to it, it's not good news anymore. It's just a religion. And the gospel is lost. That's why these Ephesian elders had to know, be reminded again, what was the essential truth. Shepherds have to protect the gospel of grace. that's their duty. We saw the word grace actually in all those Ephesians. Galatian passages I just read. It was all through there. Galatians 5.4 You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And he's telling the elders in Ephesus. And all elders from all future times. Don't let that happen. Grace is the only way. That sinners like us. Are saved. Don't fall from it. Don't twist it. Don't add to it. Fight for grace. Grace. And You could go, go right back to Acts 15:11 and Peter's declaration. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. I didn't mention Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's probably the most famous passage, right? By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. So the very definition of grace in theology is undeserved, unmerited favor. God gives his favor to the undeserving. That's us. Salvation is a gift. So we have a duty as a follower of Christ to protect that great truth. So this is a doctrine you should understand really really well and be able to point to places in Scripture. I just gave you a bunch of them where you can teach other people this if they start falling away or getting confused. It's the doctrine that the shepherds have to defend to the death. These doctrines these essential doctrines And it's a doctrine under attack all the time. And sometimes from very unlikely places. Meaning from within churches. That's what he's warning them about. We'll talk about that next week. Acts chapter 20. So let's pray. Lord you have saved us by grace alone. We've received it by faith alone. You've also sent shepherds for your flock, your church, so that no lie can move us from trusting in your grace. You have left nothing undone on your end. But we ask you to protect your people. Let your shepherds understand their role. Give them a, a gracious courage to defend the people you have entrusted to them, to protect them. Many churches across the land maintain the gospel clearly and Many do not. We ask you to open many hearts to the truth, to hold to it with great faith and perseverance. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. We'll be back in this passage next week.